Good morning. That is, <laughs> that's how I like to make an entrance. Um, this morning's readings are from Genesis and from Acts and from Ephesians and from Revelation. So you can find them all on page six in your bulletin. Um, Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Though painful toil, through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, so that they may have something to share with those in need. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Thank you, Miranda. Well, welcome again, and it's our time to give our attention to God's word. And before we do that, let's pause for a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're, we, uh, well, Jesus, we need you. Um, it's easy for us to think that we're here just to go through religious motions. This is what we do, so we do it again. Or it's easy to start to believe that really all we need to do is think our way into changing or think our way into the kingdom of God, and that's not true either. Jesus, what we really need is the help of your Holy Spirit 
to use words, words from your word, and words through my frail being, my mouth, that we all receive as your words. And God, we ask that you would change us, change our hearts, change the patterns of our lives, change us to become vessels of your glory, uh, change us in some significant way today. Uh, we want to open wide our lives to you. So come and send your spirit. Be present in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, I was hitting up the grocery store Safeway, and I was uh, surprised once again because it was almost, uh, I mean, it was still August, just not long ago, yesterday, but it was in there already Halloween for all intents and purposes. Uh, Cutouts of pumpkins and ghosts and goblins, orange and black everywhere, rows of candy as far as the eye could see. It's Halloween already in Safeway, and then before you know it, of course, Christmas decorations are going to go up, right? It's happening earlier and earlier every single year, it seems. I mean, you might as well leave the American flags out because it's basically Fourth of July again, (laughs) right? Here we go. And of course, you know, my simple point here is a, well, you may not be able to tell from the grocery store, from things around you, but it's not Halloween yet. It's simply Labor Day weekend. And Labor Day is a good time for us to reflect upon work, not only workers in this country and the good work that different people or that yourselves do. It's a good time to consider what the Bible tells us about work. Work. And I don't know what kinds of feelings that word alone conjures up for you. Maybe it's a sudden feeling of exhaustion because you're out of work, or you're maybe looking for work, or you're just worn down by your work. Maybe it's excitement because if you're new to DC, maybe it was a new job opportunity that opened up for you, brought you here. Or maybe you're not really sure what you think or how you feel. Maybe it's a mixture, in fact, uh, because maybe some of you aren't even sure if that word work even applies to you. Well, let me explain. What do I mean by work? Well, what I mean by it, what I have in mind this morning when I say work is the the main way that you use your God-given gifts and energy to serve the common good each day. The main way in which you're using your energy, your loves, your creativity, your gifts, your abilities. Whether the effort that you put in is primarily mental or primarily physical. Whether it takes place out of your home or for some of you in your home. Whether it's for pay or not. Whether it's part-time or full-time, whether you've got one job or you've got many different jobs. So this includes you if you're a teacher or a stay-at-home parent, a waitress, a, a banker, a store clerk, an artist, a lawyer, a postal worker, a volunteer coach, a legislator or a hill staffer, a lawn mower, or even a student if you're not only preparing for work, but whose studies is your work, the main way in which you're devoting your energy and your skills to day in 
and day out. If this is you, and really that should encompass every one of you, every one of us, then listen. The Bible has something to say to you today about your work. What we have before us are four different passages from the Bible. And together they sort of summarize a story. A a story of work according to the Christian faith. And what that tells us immediately is to be a worker in God's world is to participate in God's story. You you may not even know that that's what you've been doing every day that you get up and engage in your work. And you may not even be one that necessarily overtly acknowledges the God of the universe. Maybe that's why you're here. But do you know, when you work, you are participating in God's story. That, 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 that job of yours, maybe that you're sort of sniffing at, you're not really sure you want to keep it. Or, or, or maybe that task that's just been so draining, it feels so mundane and insignificant. Do you know you are participating in the story of the universe? Well, what is that? What is the story of work? Can we go through that quickly? And we'll talk about it in our Q&A time afterwards as well. Four things that we'll talk about. Number one, work is good. Number two, work, however, is broken. Thirdly, work is love. And lastly, work is forever. Let's take a look. Number one, work is good. We know this, of course, that work is often hard. We even use that phrase, it's hard work. Work is tough, but work is not bad. Not in the eyes of God. Did you know that we were made to work? It's not the only thing that we were made for, but we were actually made to be workers in the world. We see this in our first passage from Genesis chapter 1. There we're told that the very first command that God gives human beings, the very first command that God gives humanity is related to our work. We see it in verse 28, which says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over it. Theologians often call this the cultural mandate, the mandate command to create culture, to work in this world. Fill the world. With little images, pictures, glimpses of God. Of course, on one level, that refers to bearing children. That the totality of the human race is called to reproduce, as it were, images of God by bearing children, filling the earth with images in that sense. But more broadly, it also refers to to our first calling as human beings, which is to reproduce little glimpses of the nature and the character of God in everything we put our hands to. That you are to give the watching world little pictures of who God is and who we are and how the world was meant to be. So in your work, bring order out of chaos. In your work, make beauty out of what's blighted and blemished. In your work, form wholeness out of brokenness. See, our work is an invitation 
to participate in nothing less than the very mission of God. Whoever knew that your work could have such esteem? As we're told in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To work it and take care of it. And notice how this flows directly from our spiritual DNA as people created in God's image. In verse 27, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. God is creator, the maker of all things. God is creator. And guess what? We are made to be little creators, little makers ourselves, creators of well-ordered shelves and spreadsheets. Creators of art and beauty. Creators of laws and relationship and community. Creators of food and fun and leisure. God is a worker. So when you work, you're being like God himself. Which means there's dignity in our God-given work. Work is inherently good. You know, oftentimes... It's easy to wake up in the morning, and when you look at the clock or you think about the day ahead of you, if you're heading out to work, whatever it might be, it's oftentimes that we wake up, you think about your work, and you feel as if God has cursed you. What this passage is telling us is it's far from that. Work is tough. We'll get to that in just a moment. But even that toughness, our calling to engage in work is a blessing from God. It's hard and it's frustrating, but work was created and given to humankind when, you might have noticed, before the fall, before sin entered the world, which tells us that work is blessed by God. And let me just give you one implication of this truth before we move off of it. If work is good in general, then that means that all kinds of work have value and dignity. All kinds of work is therefore good and esteemed, not just some kind. Not just the high-paying ones, jobs. Not just the impressive lines of work. You see, a bad theology of work makes you a work snob. Looking down on certain kinds of occupations as being beneath yourself, or holders of those occupations, those people, as being beneath you. Well, it's not only how we look upon other people, it's also how we look upon ourselves. Not just superiority, but maybe it's inferiority that you struggle with because you feel like you work in a line of work that's just not good enough, doesn't measure up. Guess what God tells you? Your work is good. Your work makes you a picture of the God of the universe. Your work is esteemed. Your work brings into this world a little taste and a foresight of the glory of God. Some people are tempted to look down upon menial work. You got to listen. The day laborer, the daycare worker, and the days in executive all do work that's valuable in the eyes of God. I worked on that line, so I want to hear an amen around that one. Can you tell? I put some work into this. The day laborer, the daycare worker, and the days in executive 
All do work that's valuable in the eyes of God. Amen. And guess what? This is something we need to clarify even in churches as well. <laughs> I know, I'm shameless, right? <laughs> in some churches, it's easy to find cultures where pastors and missionaries, where pastors and missionaries are viewed as the people that have true higher callings, or even just true callings doing the best kind of work, and everyone else is doing second-class work. No, 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 no. All work is sacred. All work is sacred. All of you have a higher calling. We see this also not just in churches, but also in cities, ways in which we begin to set apart certain lines of work as more valuable and others as less valuable, some as good and others as not so good, and I think we see this also in the professional culture of our city as well. I mean, test your heart, your mindset, or what you see around you. I think in our city, sometimes we slip into a mindset where the only kind of good work is believed to be helping work or humanitarian work or what you might call change the world work. Years ago here in D.C., I remember talking to a a young man who actually apologized for being a mutual fund manager because he had been trained to believe that business and the world of finance was not actually esteemed in the eyes of God and that if he really was a true Christian, a true follower, faithful person in Christ, that he would have dropped everything and become perhaps a pastor or if not a humanitarian worker or perhaps an international development professional, as some of you are, and it's wonderful work, but again, it's easy to slip into this mindset to say that this is the good stuff, and this is the, well, if you're not good enough stuff. All work is good, friends. Is there a job that you're unwilling to take because you think it's beneath you? Or is there a job that you hold that maybe is good for you, uses your gifts, pays decently, you're able to make ends meet, and you're, you're constantly looking over the horizon because something or someone has told you and you hear the whispers constantly that you're better than that job. And the discontentment that can swell up simply because you don't believe this first point. God made work, and God made work good. Number two, Second point, what we see in this story is that work was created good, but work is also, secondly, broken. Work is broken because sin entered the world. Our work now is full of frustration and exhaustion. And some of you are saying, now you're talking my language. This I understand. But look, it's important to understand it wasn't supposed to be this hard. Not according to God's original design. Uh, work is good. Work was supposed to be a, a joyful, delightful, fulfilling use of our gifts. And friends, you know, we do get little tastes of that, don't we? But it was always supposed to be that at all times when we exert our energy and our loves 
and our capacities. But because of the fall, because sin entered the world, our work became infected. And here's the language that the Bible uses to explain that. We find that in Genesis 3, our second passage which is the story of what theologians call the fall, the entrance of sin into the world, when everything became corrupted and everything began to decay and fall apart, even the natural world, because of the sin of humanity. Genesis 3 reads this, Cursed is the ground because of you, God is telling Adam, who had just sinned. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. What's going on here? Well, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and one of the consequences of that sin and rebellion is that even to this day, we now feel what it's like to be on the other side of that rebellion. And so Adam and Eve were called to be workers, and what's going on? The ground is going to fight back. The cereal boxes that you place on the grocery shelves are supposed to just line up and almost say to you, your wish is my command. But instead, they fight and fall, scattered all over the floor, for you to have to pick up and shelve once again. The computer that you work with day in and day out is supposed to just work freely and smoothly, operating in every way that you intend it to, with every button that you push. Your wish is my command. Your computer is supposed to say to you these days, perhaps audibly, work on it, Siri. And yet, of course, from time to time, we experience computer crashes, loss of files, buttons that don't work. Friends, this too is a result of the fall. The ground itself will fight against you, God tells them. Farming will be a painful toil. You will work by the sweat of your brow. It will produce fruit, but it will also produce thorns and thistles for you. And ever since that day, our work has been not only a joy at times, but also frustrating. Even drudgery. Even pain to your back, to your mind, to your heart. Some of you today are limping in here emotionally because of work wounds. I don't know what that means for you, but where you just feel embattled, even beat up because of what you're experiencing at work. Every kind of work is good and every kind of work has been infiltrated by thorns and thistles. And knowing this part of the story, the second part, helps us, I think, persevere, hang in there through the struggle because we actually start to know where the struggle comes from. It's not just getting walloped out of nowhere. It's not a mystery. Well, there are mysterious components to it, like when's it going to end? But it's not a mystery. We actually have an explanatory story that says this is where that wound came from. This is where that frustration comes from. It comes from the fall of humanity. 
And so then you can maybe picture your computer when it's not working like it ought to, almost wrapped up and entangled with thorns and thistles. Uh, Maybe you you can uh, picture some part of that project that you're working on just sort of entangled with thorns and thistles. You see, it's not to just say that it's not your fault, but in a sense it is to say there's a force greater than you that's dragging that project down. Or if your child is, no, let's not go there, right? Wrapped in thorns and thistles, maybe that's a picture that needs to help, right? Right? And then we can say, yes, yes, this too is why we need you, Jesus, in the workplace, with the work of my hands. But friends, not only is work broken because of the fall, work is broken because we break it. We break it. We handle and use our work sinfully. We relate to our work in disordered ways. We actually learned this in the book of Genesis also, but a little bit later than the passage printed in your bulletin in chapter 11, in the story that's known as the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, this part of Genesis, it's so early in the story that you could almost still hear God's original commission to the human race still echoing over and through the passages. Be fruitful. Fill the earth with images and glimpses of God. And so the people are using their God-given talents and abilities, we're told, to make bricks and to build buildings. Wonderful. But then we get to verse 4 of chapter 11, and it says this. Then the people said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. And so here we have the beginnings of our use of work in order to turn our hearts away from God. In fact, the use of our gifts, in this case, to build a tower so as to almost replace God. Work becoming an idol of our hearts. Work becoming a way in which we tend to use it to make a name for ourselves, to fill the world with our own name and fame. And we do this day in and day out, don't we? Using our gifts using our work to replace God, to fill the world, or at least our corner of the workplace, or maybe our co-worker's imagination, with my name, with my fame. I feel this pressure myself along with you every day. The ways in which I can even use my work as a pastor, yes, a role that is meant to be in service to you and to our neighbors and most of all to our God, but to twist it and use it as a way to make a name for myself. The ways in which I can week in and week out become more worried about what people think of me, whether you think that I'm a good pastor more so than working for the pleasure of God. Or ways in which I know I can fall into the temptation to work even in this very moment to teach in a way that makes, well, me look smart, intelligent, attractive, whatever it might be. Because I know in my heart that I am, perhaps you are too, tempted by the lust to be famous or the lust to be known or the lust to be recognized, the lust, the lust, the lust. The ways in which that can lead me to neglect the things that aren't publicly visible the things that may not count as much in people's eyes, even though I know that they count just as much, if not more, in God's eyes. I need the help of God. 
Because my work is not just broken, but I break my work. Do you? Don't you? We do. We do. Daily tempted to use our gifts for our own glory and to achieve even independence from God and independence from our neighbor. What do we need to confess this morning, this part of the story? What do we need to confess? How are we breaking our work? How are we allowing our work to break us? And yet there's good news. God's redeeming all things, even our work. What's the third part of the story? Work is good. Work is broken. Beloved, by the grace of Jesus, work is love. Work is love. There's hope. God redeems our work. He repairs it. He renews it. Our work is still, even now, even if you're a Christian, still broken by the fall. Even on this side of the cross and resurrection, yes, still broken by the fall. God doesn't just make the thorns and thistles magically disappear, but by God's grace, our hearts do change. By God's grace, we are given the very same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead so that we can work differently with a new vision, with new motivations, with a new heart. How we work changes And so does how we approach our work. This is what our third passage teaches us. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24 and verse 28. The love of Christ changes us. When we actually put our faith in Jesus and we see Jesus change our lives, turn us inside out. The Apostle Paul tells us that we are made new in the attitude of our minds, even how we think about the world around us begins to change. He refers to our former way of life, even commanding us to put off your old self and its deceitful desires, and says that as you are overcome by the Holy Spirit, as you are changed by the grace of God, you can talk about a new self, a new me. Do you know you can be a new worker in Christ? This passage even takes us back to the language of Genesis chapter 1 that we just read a few moments ago when it says that we were created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. It's talking about our intention, God's intentions in the way that he created us to be like God. Guess what? In Christ, we're being restored to our original design to work our good work to be set free from the ways that we break our work. God is making us new workers in the image of Christ. And that's where Paul says in verse 28, this example of how this change goes about. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. You see, Paul's talking about the ways in which someone that perhaps habitually stole from their workplaces, and that might be directly applicable to some of us. It might be a stealing of a kind of actual material things that maybe you've been sneaking out of the workplace. But, or maybe it's words and ideas that you've been plagiarizing. Or maybe it's ways in which you've been stealing credit from other people. Or maybe it's just that you've been stealing fame from God's name. You've been doing everything for your own glory. We are thieves in our workplaces. And what does the apostle tell us? Jesus can change you. Transform you into a sharer. A giver. 
a helper, a servant. Dear friends, God makes us into lovers. People that look for every opportunity to be like the one who has served us so, the one who laid it all down to die for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, to change us so we also become like him, laying everything down to serve those around us. Our work becomes opportunities to love. Our work becomes a form of of service and servanthood. We do it for others, not just for ourselves. And most especially, we do it for God. As Colossians 3 verse 23 says, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. Don't you see, when you find the grace of God, or rather when the grace of God finds you, you receive forgiveness for all your sins, including forgiveness for sins, workplace sins. But not only that, we're not only given a new chance, we're also given a new identity where you can say, I work, but I am not my work. I work, but I'm not my work. A new identity. You're given a new heart where I'm not working just for gain, but I'm working to serve, serve others in all that I do, whether if it's the end game of my work or the colleagues and coworkers immediately around them. People matter to me and the work of my hand matters to how it impacts our world. You have a new identity, a new heart. You have a new goal. Where do you want Jesus to be known? Where do you want people to be well served? And you do it by the power of God's spirit who gives us power for our work. You see, the point isn't simply that becoming a Christian suddenly will make everything in your work life work out. But it might actually give you new meaning to what's become meaningless. It might give you new purpose to what, in fact, is what you and most of us are doing for most of our waking hours. Doesn't it matter that we have fresh vision and purpose and meaning to what we're doing? Can't Jesus do that for you and me again? Because God isn't simply saving souls. That's not the only kind of mission that he has. God is pouring out his favor all over the world through millions and billions of people doing their daily work. And he's working out his mission through your work. Making this world a more just place, a more humane place, a more caring place, a more fun and delightful place, a more beautiful place, a more coherent place, a more orderly place. All these things God is doing in the world as an act of love from the heart of God, but he's doing it through your work. Whoever knew That what's going on in the heart of God could be going on in whatever it is that you're doing in your workplaces. Whoever knew that one of the most significant ways that God is changing this world and working out his mission is happening through you from nine to five. God has called us to make this world a clear reflection of God and God has also promised that he's going to do it. Really briefly, final point, work is good, work is broken. By God's transforming grace, our work can become love, but lastly, work is forever. Here's what the Bible tells us, that if work is good, then even in heaven where there are only good things, then in heaven there will also be work. The best kind of work, some of you are like, 
this is good news. No, the best kind of work. Just imagine the most rewarding day of work. Or that feeling that you get even for a moment of pleasure and accomplishment after a job well done. And now multiply that by infinity and for eternity. That's what work is going to be like in the new heaven and new earth when Christ returns. We're told in Revelation 22, verse 3, no longer will there be any curse, and that includes any curse over our work. Those thorns and thistles, gone. Only fruitfulness now. The ground will fight against us no longer. No more rude customers or bosses or coworkers or no longer being that rude coworker or customer or boss yourself. No more crashing computers. No more thorns or thistles forever. Just imagine it. But we're told in verse 3, the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Our work will cease to be a project of our own glory and our selfish pursuits of fame. We will become servants perfectly, using the gifts of our hands to help others and to glorify God. No more using our jobs to build our mini towers of Babel. No more working solely to promote our own name and fame. Our work will be a service unto God and neighbor forever. In verse 5, there will be no more night. There will be no need for the light of the lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Reign and rule and subdue and multiply. Again, this is the language of Genesis 1. God is taking us back to all that he originally designed us to do with our work. We will reproduce images of God in all that we put our hands to forever and ever we will create and make new things and teach children and beautify streets and organize community and eternally with increasing beauty and order and wondrous complexity in heaven. In heaven, we will eternally use our minds and our hands, our ideas, our creativity, our hearts, our emotions eternally to bless our God and to bless our world with new songs, new food, new recipes, new designs, new technologies, new ways to travel, new ways to do whatever it is right now that you are working on, but to do it newly and for eternity. That's something worth looking forward to. God's going to do it. Friends, today, this moment, will you On this Labor Day weekend, consecrate your work to God today. That means saying to God with your heart and your hands, I give my work to you. I hand it to you, I consecrate, I hand it to you as sacred. Because you have made it sacred. And with all that I have and all that I am as a worker, I honor you. Dear friends, do you know that every time you go to work, you're participating in God's story. You're living out the grace of God in your workplace. And as you do, I want to close by inviting you to stand and I would like to pronounce a blessing over you as workers. Please do stand and receive this blessing for your work, sort of a commissioning as we go from this place. And this, of course, is the spirit of what we do every single Sunday. And yet we'll focus on this, especially today, 
this Labor Day weekend. Dear brothers and sister workers, the Lord bless you and keep you in your work. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us and in our work. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus and in our workplaces throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And let all God's people say amen. Jesus, we give ourselves to you. Receive us as workers. Change our hearts. Receive our gifts. Use us for the glory of Christ and the good of our neighbors, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Remain standing. Let's sing.